You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have any questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. Well, it's so good to see you here on Easter. I know some of you know it's Easter, and some of you, I'm not sure if you know it's Easter. Some of you seem to be excited about Christ's resurrection and what that means for you, and uh, some of you seem to have entered in a sort of an emotional state of yawning. Um, So my hope and my desire is that God's Spirit will meet you where you are, whether you're asleep, spiritually awake, um, whether you've been drawn into Christ by God's Spirit and are walking with Him, or whether you're here because your grandma wants you to be and you'd rather be at home racing rabbits. Um, or doing anything else that you might do on Easter, painting eggs or whatever. But year by year, we celebrate with hundreds of millions of other brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe the resurrection of a first century Palestinian man from a village of no consequence whose life from every worldly perspective would have been completely inconsequential. And yet, history is clearly divided in two by his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so the question that comes before us this morning, before all of us, regardless of why we're in here right now, is who is this Jesus that we celebrate on Easter? What does he reveal about himself as gospel writers chronicled his life? What does he reveal to us about God and to us about ourselves? Clearly, there's something going on with him, or you wouldn't be here. I know uh, we often speak negatively of the swell that churches have at Easter. You've got week before Easter, you've got Easter, you've got week after Easter. But that swell tells us something. It tells us that there's still an acknowledgement, still a nod in the human soul and the human psyche of so many that perhaps something really did happen 2,000 years ago by which now the world actually is a different kind of place. But who is the man we celebrate today? Let's look at Luke, the gospel of Luke in the Bible, beginning with chapter 4. And maybe you're in here this morning and this is not that familiar with you. You can follow along on the screen. If maybe you uh, brought a Bible, feel free to open it, look in the table of contents, find the book of Luke. Chapter 4 is the big number. The little numbers are the verses. We're going to pick up and I'm going to read verses 31 through 44. Verses 31 through 44, as Jesus begins his actual ministry. And we're just going to answer, who is he? Who is he this morning? Mark, sorry, Mark, Luke chapter 4, verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee. And on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away. 
What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are. With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness. And laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I lift up the souls in this room this morning, every man, every woman, every child, everyone that's in this room, that's watching online, that's in the LM Kids area. God, I pray that this Easter would not just be another Easter we go through the motions. Father, but you and your sovereign goodness and power would choose to invade our apathy, our regimen, our routine. God, invade our lostness. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Father, this morning. This great message that has changed billions of lives, that has advanced human history, has changed societies, has brought down empires. God, to put before you this morning the leaders of our country, our state and national leaders who long ago stopped looking to you for wisdom, for guidance. Father, who fails so awesome, uh, fails so often, almost inevitably, to admit with humility their dependence and their need for one greater than themselves. God, this is the story of our world. We place it in your hands. God, I lift up those in our country who have been so deeply and forever touched by both natural disasters and human disasters, man-made disasters over the last few weeks. God, we have seen the destruction that a disordered creation resulting from sin causes, and we've seen the depravity 
that a disordered heart and mind from sin causes through the violence of human beings. So Lord, we pray and put before you this morning those who are sitting in churches this morning for the first time without a child, without a brother or sister, without a husband, a wife, a mother, father, friend. God, give them comfort, lift their eyes up and place them firmly on the resurrected Christ. Jesus, lay wide our hearts this morning and reveal yourself to us by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, let's go back and look at this text, beginning with verse 31. Verses 31 and 32 tell us that after Jesus preached in his hometown of Nazareth and they did not receive it well, ran him out of town, tried to kill him, he walked right through them. We said last week we don't know whether that was uh, simply uh, based in human charisma or some kind of supernatural empowerment by the Spirit given him. But he went on his way, and then verse 31 says that he went down to Capernaum. Nazareth is up in the hills of Galilee. Capernaum is uh, down in the valley of Galilee by the sea. And it was a significant town, certainly compared to Nazareth. Several thousand population, probably in Jesus' day. It was a commercial fishing center, a trade center, a tax center. Had a, a Roman military outpost there. Had at least some degree of culture. Jesus heads down there. And on the Sabbath, he taught the people. On the Sabbath, he taught the people. Can we admit with honesty in here that as human beings, we're people who need to be taught? We need to be taught. Um, some weeks back, may even have been a few months back now, I was in the grocery store looking at something, and I was on the bread aisle pulling out a, a, a plastic bag, of some kinds of buns or something. And I looked on it and it said, do not consume bag. And I thought, we need help just as a created group. Do not consume bag. Because you know, at some point, someone in an emergency room said, when we're done with this, someone needs to contact this company and tell them they need to put a warning la label on here that the plastic bag is not to be eaten, only the contents. We are a people, we are people who need to be taught. And in a much more serious way, we need to be taught what is true in life, what is true about us, what is true about God, what is true about the world that God created, what is true about relationships and friendships and money and sex and identity and all of these various things. Uh, some weeks back, a movie was released called Jesus Revolution that chronicles one of the great awakenings that happened spiritually in the United States, beginning in Southern California and moving across the country in the late 60s and early 70s. It does uh, a good job of portraying that and pointing that out. And it does a great job of showing a generation of young people who were restless and who were hungry and who were looking for all of the true and right answers in all of the wrong places. And can I tell you, that defines where we are right now as good as anything that I've heard or seen lately. We have an entire generation of young people who are restless, who are hungry, who are drifting, who are unbelievably, to the point of, of deadly consequences, confused 
about what is true and what is not, and they're looking for answers in all the wrong places and finding them. Jesus went to Capernaum teaching. He taught the people, and they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. His words had authority. Jesus spoke, and it wasn't just how he preached, but it was what he preached. That just drew people in. They listened with amazement. Uh, in, in Jesus' day, rabbinic teachers would come into church and people would hurry into church and they'd get their donuts and they'd get their coffee and they'd come in and they'd put their iPhones in their purses and they'd get ready to be taught. And the rabbis would say about this text, so Rabbi so-and-so says this about what Rabbi so-and-so says about what was said here. And Jesus just opened the text and began to teach. As one who had the authority to explain what the text meant, and indeed, more and more, was the one in whom the text was pointing. And people's eyes were fastened on him. They were amazed that he spoke like this. And they had to have asked themselves, who, who is this man? He's not like anybody else that opens up the word for us. He's not like anybody else that's come and stood up in our synagogue and taught. Who is this man? The same questions we're asking this morning. Well, as we move into 33 and beyond, we find out, first of all, that Jesus is the one who exercises authority over all cosmic powers. Jesus exercises authority over all cosmic powers. Now, given your background, your nature, your experience, your personality, you may be someone who is more or less unnerved by the idea of, of spirits and principalities and powers at work in our world that are not human. Yet again and again and again, both the Scriptures and the experience of humanity, including brothers and sisters we have in Christ all around the world, testify to the truth of this. But I'll tell you in just a minute why we should not be undone by that, not be weirded out by that, and not go looking for weird solutions to that. Let's look at verse 33. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon. Now, I know some of you feel like you've been in a church service where this was the case. Maybe some of you feel like you brought a man that was demon-possessed this morning. Or left one at home. He was possessed by an impure spirit. In Luke's day, in the Judeo-Christian world that Luke was brought up in, and that ancient Near Eastern world, they understood spirits as both good and bad. So he's clarifying that the demon that had possessed this man was bad, evil, an impure spirit. The spirit cries out at the top of his voice. We never hear the man say anything. The whole dialogue and interchange and exchange here is between Jesus and the spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away. What do you want with us? I told the first service that uh, is sometimes how our teens are tempted to answer us when we knock on their door at home. When they were little, they loved for you to come in and play. But now they know if you're knocking at their door, it's for one of two things. It's to call them down to do chores or to tell them to clean up their pigsty of a room. 
right? The impure spirit cries out. And then he names Jesus of Nazareth. The common understanding of the day, the street level understanding was that if you could name a power, if you could name a supernatural being, if you could name a demon, you could exercise some sense of power over it. Well, this demon may be trying that. He may not be trying that. We don't know because what he confesses here is a great acknowledgement of who Jesus of Nazareth is. He says, have you come to destroy us? And he doesn't mean us that, that there are multiple demonic possessions of this single man, though that happens at times, but us as a category. Have you come to destroy the demonic powers that have been allowed to run loose to whatever degree God has determined in the human race? Then he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And as the demon says this, he confirms what God himself said at Jesus' baptism. He confirms what Mary was told prior to her conception. The Holy One of God. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be possessed by a demon, to have something inside of you that controlled you and drove you, sometimes blinded you, sometimes silenced your tongue, sometimes made your ears deaf, sometimes would cause you to fall down. And I know sometimes we go, well, that was probably epilepsy or something else, and they didn't know. The New Testament's very clue and uh, very clear, as is Luke as a first century physician, that they know the difference between demonic possession and illness and sickness. And you see that throughout the gospel that Jesus deals with both of them and somewhat differently. You imagine being enslaved by that year in and year out. Nobody wants you around. People consider you unclean. They look the other way. They move. You're not allowed to go out when other people are or to where other people go. He addresses Jesus and now Jesus addresses him. Be quiet. It's very strong, the language is here. It really could be very accurately translated, shut up. Shut up, Jesus said sternly. Get out of him. Come out of him. The demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. This is a picture of the demon throwing the man down at the feet of Jesus in front of those gathered at the synagogue upon Jesus' very words without injuring him. Those watching were were used to seeing demonic possessions. They were not used to seeing demonic possessions and deliverances where those involved were not injured and hurt. But Jesus comes to heal, not to hurt. And here we see some of the fulfillment of what we find in 1 John 3, verse 8, where John writes and says that the reason the Son of God appeared, was to destroy the devil's work. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought thought about Jesus as a satanic destroyer? Jesus as the one who is alive and at work in his world now, destroying the work of the devil, destroying it at a cosmic level and destroying it at a personal level. As the devil seeks to do everything he can to hold you, if you belong to him this morning instead of God, and everything he can to confuse you and stunt your growth if you belong to God. Because he knows he's already lost you. But perhaps, perhaps he can stunt your growth, your witness, your understanding. 
Now what happens here in verses 33 and 34 and 35 is the revelation that Jesus is who he says he is. He is who he says he is. Verse 36, all the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are with authority and power. He gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the area. In a sense, in verse 6, they're saying, who but God can do this? Here's this man we've been hearing about. He's a physical man standing among us who looks just like we do. From a little squat town just up the road with a blue-collar profession. How can he do this? Who but God can do this? And that was the entire point. Jesus was not simply the first spirit-filled teacher in a long line of people who would stand up in front of a big show on TV and touch people on the head and they'd fall back in convulsions and all of a sudden they're healed and giving great amounts to that guy. What Jesus is doing is unique. It's a validation that he actually is God in human flesh, Emmanuel. He's the God who's in charge of everything in heaven and on earth. Friends, it may seem like at times God has lost control of his earth, but I am here to tell you this morning, he has not. He has not. He's not taking a break. He doesn't need a water break. He doesn't need out of the sun for a while. He's not sitting down so the second and third stringers can get in. He is in charge and he's on the throne, moving his world to its inevitable end. And that includes his control, not only of heaven and earth, but of all powers and spirits in the cosmos. It's interesting that throughout the Old Testament, there are no rituals or mantras or incantations by which human beings drive out evil spirits. Because that's standard practice in man-made religions. But in the Old Testament, it's not some kind of magic incantation or human ritual that deals with the supernatural. It's simply God. God controls the lying spirit in 1 Kings 22. He even controls Satan himself in Job chapters 1 and 2. And in Deuteronomy 18, warns his people against dabbling in this foolishness. And we can't mimic and aren't supposed to mimic everything Jesus does. Jesus is displaying his divine power here in support of his preaching and teaching ministry, as you'll see in a minute. We're not to be like those sad and tragic Filipinos in our day who, even on Friday, were participating in the events of Holy Week by allowing themselves to be crucified on a cross for a period of time outside San Pedro Cadud. This village, and this happens year in and year out. This year it was eight Filipinos. Eight Filipinos who walked through the streets of the village there carrying the cross beam of the cross on their backs up to a high area where other Filipinos dressed as Roman centurions had the straight bars of the cross ready, beams laying down on the ground and they would lay them down, put the cross beam in its place, tie their arms in there, and then, yes, drive four-inch stainless steel nails through each hand and each foot as they raised them up, the little platforms that your feet rest on. They stayed up there 10 minutes each, 
They do this year in and year out. One 60-year-old sign painter named Ruben Inaje has participated 34 times. Years ago, he fell from a third-story building and experienced not only not death, but no significant injuries at all. And in a way of demonstrating gratitude toward God and of continually in a, in a tangible way repenting of his sin each year, he goes through this. He said this, When I'm laid down on the cross, my body always begins to feel cold. When my hands are tied, I just close my eyes and tell myself, I can do this. I can do this. Friends, the whole point of the crucifixion is that someone was crucified for you. It's not that you and I could somehow enter into those events in that way and achieve something before God. You and I have nothing. We don't have anything to bring to the table with God. We're beggars. God is not impressed with us. He's not impressed by our finances. He's not impressed by our fitness levels. He's not impressed by our weekly devotions. He's absolute righteousness, absolute holiness, absolute purity. God is moved by our humility, our willingness to confess our need for him. We can't serve God into his approval. Now, you can your spouse, right? Men. I mean, if your wife comes home and finds you like elbow deep in the sink with dishes, she likes that. You, you look better than you have in a while to her. Maybe she comes in a few days later and she finds you completely covered in laundry that you've already washed, dried, and now you're folding on the couch. Get out of town, right? Schedule a movie night that night for you. That doesn't work with God. God always acts first, and we respond in gratitude, empowered by the Spirit. It's unlikely, possible, but unlikely, that anyone in here this morning is possessed by a demon. But some of you may be possessed by a kind of besetting sin that you can't seem to get over. And you live with shame because of your constant giving in to this particular sin. And you feel like really you're helpless. Like you, there's nothing else you can do but give in to it. And this morning, Jesus says to you, I am the one who exercises authority over that in your life. Come to me. Maybe you're possessed by a wound, a wound that will not seem to heal, a wound that results maybe uh, from something that you did or something that was done to you. And you have better days and you have worse days, but you can't seem to find healing and freedom from it. And Jesus says to you this morning, I exercise authority over the wounds of my people. Come to me. Maybe it's an insecurity that is such a significant thing in your life. It continually robs you of joy and prevents you from having meaningful and deep friendships because you're always feeling slighted out of that insecurity. Jesus says to you, let me have it. I exercise authority over human feelings and insecurity. Maybe it's regret. 
Maybe, as I mentioned before, you did something in your past or something was done to you. And you feel a sense of possession now by a state of regret that says, because you did this or because that was done, you can now never become the man or the woman fully that God intends. That's a whisper that comes from the devil, not from God. God, God is the one who makes all things new. You think you, think you shock him with your sin? Think he doesn't know who you are? He says, you know what, I, I exercise authority over regret and shame in those whispers. Come to me. When Jesus comes to live inside us, part of what he does is say, I know you. I know you. I know every fear. I know every dream. I know your deepest thoughts. I know your deepest fears. I know it all. And I love you. He's the one who exercises authority over all cosmic powers. And in a sense, when Jesus drives out this demon, this man becomes alive again, set free by the power of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is also the one who reveals the heart of God for broken people. Now, we won't spend as much time on these back two as we did on the first one. But go ahead, if you will, and look, starting at verse 38. Jesus is the one who reveals the heart of God for broken people. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law, this is Simon Peter, was suffering from a high fever. And they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And she got up at once and began to wait on them. Now Luke being a doctor, he handles this text a little more specifically than Matthew and Mark. Matthew and Mark both note that Simon's mother-in-law had a fever. Luke notes that she was suffering from a high fever. How many of you have ever had a high fever? 103, 104, 105, two and a half of you. <coughs> Much healthier than the last group. I think some of you are lying. Or you've forgotten. It might have gotten so high it fried your brain. <laughs> high fevers are miserable, right? You feel miserable. No doubt she's suffering. Clearly she was out of Tylenol and out of ibuprofen. Not able to take any of that. There was nothing else. No stores are open on the Sabbath. So it's Jesus. She's got this high fever. And high fever does weird things to you. One of our kids responds uniquely to high fever and always has. It seems like they're demon-possessed when their fevers get high. Talking all kinds of gibberish and nonsense in the middle of the night. You know, I see birds. I see birds flying on the ice cream cone. I began to wonder when they were little, my first experience, I was like, well, maybe they are possessed, <coughs> right? Maybe we need to lay hands on, but over time, I came to understand, no, this is just how high fever affects this particular child. She's suffering. It's mealtime. They've left synagogue. In a sense, this is a, a normal day. They'd had their synagogue service. Everybody had left. <coughs> and it was lunchtime, and she was suffering. So Jesus bends over. And what's interesting is he doesn't so much say anything to her, but he rebukes the fever, and it left her. Then she got up at once and began to wait on them. In a sense, she was alive again because of Jesus. And we don't think much about fever in our day. High fever 
was terrifying to almost all people who lived before the last generation or two. Because they could not treat it medically. And it often led to death. Not always, but it often did. She gets up and she begins to wait on them. This is not just a woman doing woman things in the house while people are there. This is a woman responding in service to the Jesus who just delivered her. One of the clearest distinctives of true followers of Christ is the way in which their lives are poured out in service of Christ in response to a deep understanding of what he's done for them. It's one of the things that I think reveals some of the greatest danger to the church in our land at our time is the difficulty, the great difficulty with which we have getting people to serve, getting people to serve consistently. Oh, yeah, call me if you need me, you know, anytime. Every week we need you. I don't want to serve every week. Right, an hour a week, that's rough. Um, it's It's a sad comment. It's a sad comment on who we are and who we think we are. Now, at sunset, look at verse 40. At sunset, so the Sabbath day is closing. Uh, people have been faithful not to, bring, uh, not to bring everybody to Jesus during Sabbath, which would run from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday. But as the sun is setting, people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness. I want to challenge you this morning just to ask you, where are you tempted by by instant inclination to send people who are in need. Is it your first inclination to to bring them to Jesus? Or is it your first inclination to maybe recommend a good self-help book from Barnes & Noble or Amazon? Maybe send them a link to a, a Dr. Phil episode that you thought was super awesome or Oprah Dr. Ruth or Dr. Seuss or Dr. Pepper? Or is your first inclination to say, man, this that's going on with you right now, I know the one who's the answer for it. And you bring Jesus, bring them to Jesus as the one who reveals the heart of God for broken people. We see this over and over again. People that don't consider themselves broken get very little from Jesus. People that know they're broken get a great deal from Jesus. Moreover, verse 41, well, let's look at this. This is important. The second half of of verse 40, they're bringing people, all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. This is so significant that Jesus reveals the heart of a God who comes to connect with each one of you where you are. Each one. He lays his hands on each one. I wouldn't have done that. I'd have been like, look, I already did church, and I healed Peter's mother-in-law. She fed us. I'm tired. It's nap time. The game's coming on. Sun is setting. Going to watch the Philistines play the Canaanites tonight. We hate them both, so we don't even care who loses or wins. I'd have said, be healed and go. It's game time. Jesus goes one by one. He lays his hands on them. So powerful. Such a beautiful picture of the truth that the psalmist writes about. Psalm 147, 3. 
as he's talking about who God is. And he says, He, that is God, heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Are you brokenhearted this morning? Is there a place in you that's just fractured and you can't seem to get your hands around it? Scripture tells us that God, God heals the brokenhearted. Psalm 147.3, and binds up their wounds. This is really intimate, physical, uh, medical language. It's a, it's a picture of a doctor working very closely with a patient to make sure that the fullness of the wound is dealt with. Not just triaged, but the full recovery to health and wholeness is done there. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Jesus is the one who reveals the heart of God for broken people. Finally, he's the one who reveals the heart of God for a broken world. He's the one who reveals the heart of God for a broken world. See, it's, it's not just individual human beings that have been broken by sin. The world has been broken. The institutions and systems of societies are fractured by sin. Look at verse 41. Moreover, demons came out of many of the people that had been brought to Jesus, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Here, in a sense, you have people being made alive again. But it's very interesting that Jesus says, Shush! I don't want you telling what I'm doing right now or who I am. It seems that there's two reasons behind this. One is, you don't want demons as your primary witnesses. Am I right? Like who wants, let's just put it in layman's language. Can we do that? Can I pretend we're blue collar for a minute? Who wants the biggest losers in your life going, <laughs> I'll write a reference letter for you. Hold my beer. Right? The demons are not the ones that Jesus wants testifying to him. But also, the understanding of the people listening to Jesus is not a correct understanding of who the Messiah is and what he's going to do when he comes. And Jesus knows that. He knows that their only lens for a Messiah is a political, military figure who's going to come and make all things politically and militarily right for the people of Israel and overthrow the Romans. And Jesus knows he needs time. He needs time. Friends, time, timing is often everything in kingdom work. Everything in kingdom work. Even now, let me speak just briefly to those of you who were here last year and you'll be uh, or here last week and you'll be here again this next week. There are times where, I, man, I know some of you, longtime members, regular attenders, you're like, man, let's do this. When are we going to do this? And so often we're like, just, Hold on, right? Hold on. Timing is everything. And there are some primary foundational things that have to be put in place, even now in the life of a church, before other things can be done and done well in a way that glorifies God. And Jesus is saying, not now and not you. You don't speak for me. But in verse 42, in verse 42, it's daybreak. Jesus has been going at this, it seems, all night long. Now, can I just say this? When you're a teenager, all night long means something different to you. It means party. 
When you're in your 20s, all night long means something different to you. It means I got to hit a Red Bull in the morning before I go to class or a five-hour energy drink or whatever it is they drink now, Monster. When you're in your 30s, you start to wonder if all night long is the best way to go about your business. And when you're in your 40s, you begin to admire people who are getting in bed at nine. You're like, that's a winner right there. That's a winner. I want to take that person lunch and find out how they order their day. Jesus has been at this all night long. So in verse 42, it's no surprise that he goes out to a solitary place. The people are looking for him, and when they find where he is, they try to keep him from leaving them. Any of you ever had, I know many of you have, had one of those rare moments where God just makes his presence really known to you. It may be in a moment of personal devotion. It may be in a, a moment of worship. It may be while you're driving in your car and you're sort of praying and thinking. It can be any time. But God draws near to you through his spirit, and it is so sweet and so palpable that you don't want it to end, but you can't hold on to it. Those in Capernaum seem to want Jesus to stay and keep doing what he's doing. And if he lived by the crowd mentality that the church in America does, that's exactly what he'd do. You, you imagine if he had uh, the disciples around him at this moment, they'd be going, what, what are you doing, man? Things are looking good here, right? The crowd's building, word is spreading, people making TikTok videos. We're all over Instagram and Snapchat. I think I said Snapchat. Snapchat? Now that half of you would even know. But, yeah, word is spreading, but he's got to go. Look at what Jesus says in verse 43. He knows who he is and why he came. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. I don't think that we believe often that the Bible is good news. That what God reveals to us, ultimately in Christ, recorded in Scripture, given the authority of Christ in Scripture, is actually good news in a world with such bad news. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. He says, I was sent to preach. I was sent to preach the good news. And everything else I do, I do in service of this preaching ministry. And he kept on preaching, verse 44 says, in the synagogues of Judea. They could not stop him from doing what he was called to do. He preaches in Nazareth and they run him out of town, try to kill him. He preaches in Capernaum and they want to keep him there. There's always a divided response to the word of God. John 20 verses 21 and 22 remind us that a sent Savior only redeems a sent people. Jesus says in John 20, 21 and 22, peace be with you as he's speaking to his disciples. As the Father has sent me, I, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. All true Christians are sent people. It doesn't mean we're all evangelists. It doesn't mean we're all asking our server at every restaurant incident the condition of his or her soul. It doesn't mean that you choose to randomly host backyard Bible clubs. 
But it does mean that if you are in Christ, you are a sent person because you are in a sent Savior. It means broken people should matter to you. It means foreigners and widows and single moms and immigrants, legal and illegal, should matter to you. The poor, the orphans, the foster kids, the adoption families should matter. All true Christians are sent people. And all true churches are mission outposts, right? We're going to be messy. Sometimes we're going to have a hard time keeping up. The Spirit's leading. Alistair Begg says it this way, we can either evangelize or fossilize, but we will do one or the other. I believe that is true both in the hearts and lives of individuals and in the heart and the life of a church. With this text, we find two warnings to us this morning. Well, that's not true. Well, we could find many warnings. We find a warning and an invitation. A warning and an invitation. J.C. Ryle was a, uh, a 19th century evangelical preacher in the Anglican Church in England. He's the first bishop of Liverpool in his writings, his expositions and commentaries on the Gospels and on the letters of Paul remain um, incredibly influential today. J.C. Ryle wrote this in his day, and it is extremely applicable, applicable in our day and in here right now. He said, let us beware of an unsanctified knowledge of Christianity. It is a dangerous possession, but a fearfully common one in these days. We may know the Bible intellectually and have no doubt about the truth of its content. We may have our memories well stored with its leading texts and be able to talk glibly about its leading doctrines. And all this time, the Bible may have no influence over our hearts and our wills and our consciences. We may, in reality, be nothing better than the demons. Friends, I don't know you all. I don't nearly know you all. But I can say that this is going to be true for some of you in here this morning. And it's going to be true for a portion of every person sitting in every church across the Bible Belt on Easter morning. You know some, you know some of the stories from Sunday school. You're familiar with the Bible. You even believe it's true. but you've never bowed your heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You may love theology, just not the God of theology. The warning to us this morning is the same one that we see in the demons. We can know about him. We can know who he is. We can know why he came. And be doing nothing but cycling straight down a path toward an eternity separated from God in hell. There's a warning. There's also an invitation. There's an invitation to come to Jesus. As the demon-possessed man did in a synagogue where he was not welcomed. There's an invitation to come to Jesus with all your questions, with all your insecurities, with all your wounds, with all your pride, with all your skepticism. With all your success, with all your acquisitions, with all your finances, to come to Him and receive the forgiveness and life that He offers through faith in Him. 
through allegiance to him, through trusting him. It's an invitation to believe that we are indeed, as I said before, in this place this morning because something actually did happen 2,000 years ago by which the world really is a different place today. Rosaria Butterfield, Rosaria Butterfield, who is the author of the great, great book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, and also her personal, short, brilliant, beautiful autobiography about coming to faith, Private Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, describes herself this way at the beginning of her book, where she talks about God intervening in her life in 1999. She said, at that point, I was a 36-year-old, recently tenured professor of English literature and director of the Women's Studies Center at Syracuse University. I was in a committed lesbian relationship with a professor from a neighboring university with whom I own two homes. We were activists in the LGBT community. We worked with animal rehab clinics and supported a lot of causes together, including AIDS healthcare, children's literacy, sexual abuse healing, and disability activism. We were members of the Unitarian Universalist Church which is really no church at all. You can Google it later if you want to. Coordinator of the Welcoming Committee, Rosario was, which is a gay and lesbian advocacy group. And God begins to, in a sense, reel her in through an article she wrote that was published in an editorial in service of LGBTQ causes. And she said she got an overwhelming amount of mail, most of which was total praise or total hate. And she said behind her desk in her, in her office at Syracuse, she had one box for the total hate, one box for the total praise. And then she got a letter from a local pastor, intelligent, articulated, well-educated, but kind, compassionate, and thoughtful. He encouraged her as an intellectual, as someone who he believed took what she said seriously, to consider maybe some of her presuppositions underneath the comments in the article. He asked her some thoughtful questions and invited her, if she ever wanted to talk more, to give him, give him a call. He'd be interested in getting to know her and hearing more of her story. She did that. She did that. She gave him a call. She ended up going over to his house to have dinner with he and his wife. And as that relationship progressed and God began to bring more influences and more people into Rosario Butterfield's life, her life was changed forever by hearing the Spirit's sweet invitation to come to Jesus and working herself away through all the, all the implications of what that would mean, of surrendering everything that she is, everything that she has, everything that she understands about herself and about the world, all her plans and hopes for the future to the Lordship of Jesus and trusting him. In Private Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, which we actually have in the bookstore out here, she says, in addition to appearing to be anti-intellectual, Christians also scared me. Speaking of her life before Christ. Outside of the Lord, life is a very treacherous ordeal. A life outside of Christ is both hard and frightening. But as I've come to know, 
a life in Christ, has hard edges and dark valleys, but it is purposeful even when painful. There's a warning and an invitation that goes out to every single one of us in here. I pray that you will heed the warning and you'll say yes to the invitation. What greater day? Today is always the greatest day to say yes to Jesus in response to the Spirit. But what better time to do that than Easter Sunday, 2023? Let me ask you to stand. Some of you may need to say yes to Jesus for the very first time. Give your life to Him. Throw yourself on Him as you feel the Spirit calling you redemptively. Others of you may just need to say, Jesus, I've drifted. I've drifted quite far. But I do believe that you're the one that reveals God's heart for broken people and for a broken world. And I need you to make me whole. Whatever your prayer is, your plea is, your cry to God is, I hope you'll offer it this morning as we respond in song and communion to the Word of God. Uh, let me pray for us. And as I do, our offering ushers are going to make their way to their positions. And when I finish praying, they'll pass the buckets and you guys can drop in your connection cards and giving envelopes. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful to you this Easter Sunday morning. We're grateful for the resurrection, God, that 2,000 years ago, you looked on the suffering, sacrifice, of your son on a Roman cross as tens of thousands had hung and would hang after. And you said, with this one, I am well pleased. Jesus, you said, it is finished. Everything, everything that must be accomplished for our redemption, our sanctification and wholeness and for the making new of all parts of your creation were accomplished through your broken body and shed blood. God, as we prepare to give back to you this morning, tithes and offerings, God, I pray on this day of all days when we understand the fullness of provision and generosity you've shown us, that we would give with deep generosity and deep joy as an act of love. And God, now I simply ask, I ask believing, I ask with clarity and compulsion that God, for there are lost men and women in this room right now, you would save them. You would save them as clearly as you showed up on the road to Damascus, Lord Jesus, and in your risen glory saved Saul. I pray right now that you would invade lost hearts that are dead, trapped in darkness and sin, and give them new life. God, I pray for the saints in this room, those who for sure are still sinful, but God, by your glory, have been made new, are seen through the beauty and the righteousness of Jesus, that they would be edified and sanctified. I ask this all in Jesus' powerful and victorious name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, 
visit us at lmbc.us. Thank you for tuning in today.